0: To the album nerds podcast with your hosts andy todd and Tude.
1: say hello to my little friends it's me dude i got andy and don with me it's the album nerds podcast guys you ready to uh talk about some albums
2: you just said nobody nobody loves the bad guy you know coming here with my opinions and nobody appreciates it
1: so say good night to the bad guy the last time you're gonna see a bad guy like this again let me tell you <laughs> <laughs> bad guys make the world go round dude <laughs> Kanichiwa. little foreshadowing there
2: there you go you have to listen back to the episode to get our jokes at the beginning of the episode. Right. That's not that good.
1: You want to listen twice. They're called Easter eggs. Oh, yes. Right. That's right. I just made up that term. All right. So we're the album nerds. We uh, like to talk about albums. We're going to do so today. We'll also be answering a question. And we're going to spin the wheel of musical destiny at the end of the show to find out what kind of albums we're going to talk about next time. But this week was a year. And that
0: year was 1983. <laughs> what I'm talking about! Okay, uh, in 1983, uh, the, the final episode of the television series MASH aired, drawing nearly 106 million viewers. There was a huge recession in the video game industry, uh, which later became known as the video game crash of 1983. The first mobile phones were introduced by Motorola. What? Yep. Uh, Motown celebrated its 25th anniversary with a television special called Motown 25. Yesterday, today, Forever, uh, and during which Michael Jackson famously performed Billie Jean and introduced the moonwalk. Um, this is a matter of debate, but uh, supposedly the, the modern internet was born in 1983. Whoa. Yeah. It's, okay. too, it's too complicated to get into. So, is this the one that Al Gore created? I think so. Okay. Uh, (laughs) That's not what I learned in school. Okay. There's a lot of alternative facts here. Uh, Star Wars Return of the Jedi was released, and the rock band Kiss appeared for the first time in public without makeup on MTV. Yeah. Yeah, except only two
1: of the members were original members. That's right. So it really wasn't that uh, exciting for... Some fans, but uh yeah, that's also the year that they released their record uh lick it up, which you know
0: lick it up.
1: yes, <laughs> please don't do that again <laughs> <God>. <laughs> yeah, so eighty three I mean, I remember a lot of that stuff, the Michael Jackson thing was. Enormous. I mean, every kid at school was trying to moonwalk the that next day. And the when TV, when events, moments on TV were affected, like everybody is a different time. But uh, music-wise, a lot of good stuff. A lot of albums we've already talked about on the show. But some of the stuff I considered: Cindy Lauper, she's so unusual. I, John Mellencamp's uh huh. Iron Maiden, Peace of Mind, uh, good record. Dio, Quiet Riot. The Police, The Water Boys, which my friend Nick happened to mention to me. Their first album came out in 83, and he just texted me randomly to go check out The Waterboys. So hmm. a lot of good stuff that uh, I experienced. How would you guys do?
2: Yeah, there was a lot to pick from. Uh, I almost went with Bad Brains, which was doing some pretty interesting things in the punk reggae space in the early 80s.
1: <laughs> the space they created. The only
2: space, yeah. We abandoned that space. And then I came across the record I was just going to mention because it was pretty weird but interesting from Peter and the Test Tube Babies. You guys ever heard of this this band?
1: Where do you find this stuff, man?
2: <laughs> I think that was a no. Yeah, the record's called The Mating Sounds of South American Frogs. It's like psychedelic rock. It's actually pretty good. It just didn't really make sense for the show, I didn't think. But pretty, pretty cool stuff nonetheless.
1: Seriously, where do you dig this stuff up? That was on a list that you posted, actually. Oh. Well, never mind. <laughs> I didn't read that far. I, I
0: got to about number 50.
2: Yeah, it was 51. in <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, this was a, a little tougher for me uh, than I expected. I, I guess um, well, partially because we've done some of the the big albums from this this time period, or you know, from this year. You know, I, you guys had done David Bowie Let's Dance um, not too long ago. Probably my favorite album from the year is New Order Power Corruption and Lies, which which we covered I, I think last summer. There's a good Talking Heads album, Speaking in Tongues. Which, uh, you know, we just covered them fairly recently. And then, you know, there's an OMD album I love, uh, and an, you know, REM's debut. But, you know, we've been doing so much kind of post punk and synth pop lately that I, I felt like I had to go in a, in a different direction. Today, each of us will present an album from the year
2: 1983.
0: You choo choo choose me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's
2: so weird. Alright, I'm gonna kick things off with the artist Tomoko Aran. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Probably gonna be lots. Just a preemptive apology for all my terrible Japanese. The album is called Fukuyu Kunan. Kukunan? Which I one more time. Fuyuku <laughs> Kukunan. <laughs> came out in May 1983. <laughs> Andy's back. <laughs> the third <laughs> studio album for the singer-songwriter from Hirosaki, Japan. We are going to play, I believe it was the opening single, entitled Midnight Pretenders.
0: Every wish, Every
1: wish,
2: oh, dude, what a <laughs> groove, man. Good. Just got me drifting along here. The album loosely, the title loosely Translate in English as Floating Space, which I think is a pretty good description of the sound here. Um, so the artist, Tomoko, she was put out nine albums between 1981 and 1990 on Warner Brothers, known for kind of making the city pop genre, which was new to me more popular i guess uh in the 80s and 90s have you guys ever heard of that term before
0: uh uh nope i like it though it's really hard
2: to get a good definition but it's just kind of like i guess urban sounding pop music whatever that means exactly
0: Yeah, I read somewhere somebody kind of described it. Like, imagine somebody walking around the city, uh, listening to a Walkman, you know, which was like the big technology at the time. Yeah, that was huge yeah. at the time. Yeah, totally.
1: Yeah, I've, I felt like it was pieces of all of the popular pop genres in America at the time, is what it felt like to me. Like, they just took all these little pieces from American music and mixed it together well somehow.
2: Yeah, it's kind of an amalgamation of. English or American and Japanese cultures, Uh, the record goes back and forth between the two languages pretty seamlessly in the middle of songs.
0: Sometimes it's hard to tell. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's the the brilliance (laughs) though of
1: of sewing in some English choruses and stuff. So if it's like, let's say, uh, let's go out tonight or something. Then when you hear the rest, the part in Japanese, because of the way the music, makes you sway and you kind of know that feeling and what that music feels like you almost know what the words are that go along with the english words it's, it's hard to describe but it was usually when stuff is in in uh, other languages for extended periods it can be frustrating but i was not frustrated at all
2: you do kind of get the vibe at least with some of the english like what what she what she's talking about so my three words uh, for this record are hello j-pop Jane popping two separate words, I guess <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know, this was definitely new to me, but I really ended up enjoying it. Uh, why don't we play a cut from the middle of the record? This is Haniya, not to be confused with outcast. <laughs> it's not hey, yeah, it's Hanya, Hannya, Hannya sure.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that one threw me off. Yeah, while listening to the record, although it does, it does sound very urban. I guess you know, like a maybe would have been New York City dance clubs at the time. But
0: yeah, it almost seems like the confusion. Of, like if you were walking by, like I picture a like a video game arcade, you know, mm-hmm. and then like some other storefront or whatever with music, or whatever. It kind of feels like you'd have that <laughs> that, t- that, that two sensory sounds. experience. Yeah. Computer sounds, yeah. <laughs> So, actually, uh, a hanya uh, is a mask used in Japanese no theater representing a jealous female demon. So, I don't mm. know if that makes, you know, sort of frames that that song a, a little differently. But, yeah, you know, that one stood out to me. I mean, it's just a sort of a, a crazy psychedelic uh, sounding track. Uh, the, the three words I, I chose to describe the, the album are Senren Sarada Papu Tanza which nice. translates to oh i wow. <laughs> Yeah, I've, this has inspired me to learn Japanese. Uh sophisticated pop explorations. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, um because I mean that's I mean essentially what it is. It's it's a pretty uh, eclectic album. Uh you know, it's it's all over the place. It's it's synth pop, it's psychedelic, a uh, little bit of jazz and then some, you know, real like uh, adult contemporary soft rock. But yet it's still kind of coherent. Uh, and it's it's really well produced. And sometimes when I when I you know listen to music from other countries, it's almost like hey, this is the you know this is the Japanese reproduction of a, of Western music, but it, it doesn't really play like that. You know, it it is kind of like a, a unique you know artistic experience or something. So it's not just um, you know Japanese people doing doing Western music. This is you know something something special or, or something different. Yeah, I, I mean, this is not something I would have probably found on my own, um, but I really enjoyed it, you know, and it wasn't like an anthropological experience, you know, I really just enjoyed it for, for the music.
2: Yeah, I was surprised how accessible, I mean, it's pop at its heart, so it is, there's something very accessible to it, um, but it has that cool kind of cultural amalgamation thing going on which is interesting too to hear
1: it could have easily been playing on a radio station i wouldn't have at the time and it would have fit in with everything yeah. else that was going on
2: Yeah, i don't i really didn't get a sense There wasn't a lot of information in terms of like sales or anything like that and for this record but i got the impression it was fairly popular in japan but i don't i don't know about in the states if it really got any any play or, or whatnot i know one of the songs on here was just sampled by the Weeknd. So that got kind of a little bump in popularity. I think maybe that was last year.
1: That was the weekend out of time. It sampled uh, Midnight Pretenders. Maybe like pretty much just took the just took a, a <laughs> little more than a sample. in my <laughs> <opinion>. <laughs> yeah,
2: It's a nice little bit of the song I remember.
1: I just, I think that's the cool thing that happens sometimes with sampling or Or borrowing like i i imagine that this music has you know a new window has been opened for some people because the weekend and his production team found this and they liked it and they used it and i think that's uh sometimes people get angry about sampling and i used to but now i see the benefits especially when we've got this you know the whole world is at our fingertips so let's use what we find
2: yeah i totally agree it's definitely worth kind of remembering back or at least giving a little glimpse of of some of these things that were happening 40 years ago let's play a little sample from I'm in love
1: say like I hear, like, I'm in love more with you every day, you know? Like, I hear the words I, want, I expect, you know? <laughs> right. It's It uh, was an interesting experience. I think that song was um, about being in love. <laughs>
2: could be, could be.
1: I hope. I mean, maybe the rest is like, you know, who knows? I didn't translate it. Three words I used to describe this album are musical Japanese innovation. And what I mean by that is in the 80s, Japan uh, was known for all the innovations. Uh, electronics, automobiles, Hondas, and, and uh, Toyotas and all of that were kind of taking over the U.S. car market. And the U.S. is where cards were invented and first built japan figured out ways to do it more efficiently and lower cost it's same with like electronics making small cassette players and selling them all that stuff that japan was doing i feel like it's similar to what they were doing here where they took musical inspiration from american pop music and then made it sleek in in one package and got all the all the little genres in from one artist and, uh, made it successfully. I mean, I was so impressed with the production and the playing. I thought for sure that it was a Japanese singer playing with American musicians because the, f- the funky bass and the, just the style on the synths and everything. It just sounded perfectly performed. And I don't know what the music scene was like in Japan previous to this or how these artists developed. I just got to wondering if they had like, an equivalent to the american uh, the wrecking crew the band that played on a uh, tons of albums in the 60s if they had a group of musicians they used for all these j-pop albums i don't i don't know i couldn't find any information on that but it just was so good
2: yeah you know i found some information on the japanese wikipedia all the there you go all the musicians names do look japanese to me and you're right it's like a full it's a full band i mean there's guitar and sax and drums okay. and bass and,
0: and like surprising guitar i don't remember like the one of the tracks later in the album all of a sudden there's just like this this guitar solo and they like solo?
2: what yeah
0: <laughs> is that stevie ray it shocked,
2: it shocked me too <laughs> could put some albums we're talking about to shame and um, but anyway, yeah, it's a really interesting mix of sounds and cultures, and it definitely has an 80s vibe to it. Um, but if you're into that pop sound of, of the 80s, I think there's something here to, it's worth hearing. So once again, the artist is Tokumo Aran. The album is Fuyuku Kukanan. Maybe something like that. Uh, came out in 1983. <laughs> Might be your best way to find it. Check it out.
0: Excuse me, I'd like to ask you a few questions.
1: It is time that we ask ourselves a question. It's 83, 1983. We're talking about albums. What did we think about the movies? What are your favorite movies from 1983? Well, there
2: weren't as many, like, blockbusters as I was expecting, or at least ones that I had seen. The one that stuck out to me looking through the list of top films from that year was Videodrome from David Cronenberg, which I did not see when I was... Two years old, but saw more recently. <laughs> pretty messed up, kind of psychological thriller. Some pretty amazing David Cronenberg effects. If you're a fan of his films at all, it's a pretty good one.
0: Well, if you had asked me at the time, uh, you know, I would have said Return of the Jedi or War Games or something. But you know, in in my adult life, I, I've come to appreciate the the film The Big Chill you know which involved um you know basically i guess baby boomers you know who are now into their 30s kind of returning for the funeral of their friend who who uh, had committed suicide and it's you know it's uh sort of self indulgent baby boomer <laughs> drama you know but but I, I tend to go for that kind of thing for some reason <laughs> who's in that one great cast yeah william hurt um kevin klein uh-huh. glenn close uh, the lady from Poltergeist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she appreciates that. Oh, Tom Barringer. Too.
1: The dude from? Platoon, Major League. Yeah, yeah I was thinking Major League. Yeah, it, you know what's weird about looking at the movies from, from 1983 is, like, like Don said, yeah, Return of the Jedi was a big deal. But when you look at the top domestic box office, of course, you have Return of the Jedi, Tootsie, Flashdance uh war games risky business and a bunch of those are movies I, I really do like. But one of the big ones from eighty three was Scarface. And that was of course my reference at the top of the show. Um people were more averse to violence and and swear words and we just soak it all in now. So I don't think <laughs> you know, I think that probably would have been number one uh if if time had changed. But hmm. yeah, um Staying Alive was number seven, the follow up to Saturday Night Fever. I mean, come on, people. All right, so how about y'all? 1983, got any favorite movies? Let us know. albnerds.com slash Discord. Is that it? I haven't said it in a while. (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) Took the week off last week.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is it slash? Yes. What a. It's a forward slash. First time using the internet. (laughs) Sheesh. albnerds.com slash Discord. (laughs) I'm a rocker, dude, through and through. Here's my favorite bands, ACDC, Van Halen, not Van Hagar, <laughs> <That's good. laughs> Skinner, Def Leppard. Right.
0: Okay, uh, well, the, the album I chose to review from 1983 is Pyromania from Def Leppard. Uh, let's listen to the, well, maybe the, the first big single from this album. This is uh, Photograph. Oh yeah. So that song was a was a big MTV hit. Probably one of the first real hard rock tracks that they that they embraced. So this is the the third studio album from English rock band Def Leppard, spelled D E F. L e p p a r d. That's the British spelling. Like you know how color
1: is c o l o u r. Are you for I'm real? Sure that's true. They spell butts. <laughs> no, <laughs> no,
0: they just thought it looked badass that way for their <laughs> logo. <laughs> uh, so they were formed in uh, Sheffield, England, in 1976. So even when I go out of my comfort zone, I still stick to the, to the English. Yes. <laughs> of course. I, we noticed. <laughs> Believe me. Uh, the lineup uh, at this time was uh, Joe Elliott on vocals, Rick Allen, uh, the drummer, Rick Savage, the bass. Uh, and this album actually features three guitarists. You have uh, Steve Clark and then guitarist Pete Willis uh, was actually fired during the recording of this album for um, you know, the alcohol abuse, I guess. Uh, and he was uh, quickly replaced by Phil Collin. Um, so, you, you can actually hear all three guitarists on this. The the three words I, I chose to describe the album, I just stole a, a title from one of the songs, Rock of Ages, you know, because the song, you know, kind of talks about it, you know, continuing to, to roll. Yeah, you know, I think this album is sort of indicative of, you know, where rock and roll was was going at that time. And, you know, I kind of see this as they didn't create glam rock or anything like that, but I think they were the, you know, kind of the... The first ones to really break through on, on MTV, and you know, it's the beginning of sort of that of that genre kind of saturating uh, rock and roll. Um, okay, well, let's uh, let's hear another track from from the album, "Foolin."
1: Oh, for, for "Foolin," yeah. this was my. Jam a lamb in uh, 1983, man. Saw this on Friday night videos and was just like, what is that? I, I, this was like the heaviest thing I'd ever heard at, at the time. <laughs> and I loved it. The three words I chose to describe this album were rocks next level, which kind of dovetails into what Don was saying. Mutt Lang brought out everything in this band. He helped them hone their sounds much like he did with ACDC. Took those hooligans and kind of, kind of made, took, you know, like a a laser beam of what they were doing, you know, and I think that's what he did with, uh, with Def Leppard here. Uh, they defined what hard rock was going to sound like for the rest of the decade the the way that they did those vocal harmony things the yelling uh, uh, stuff that they would all do in unison like
0: i want to rock and roll roll.
1: yeah that stuff yeah (laughs) they do all that stuff together like bon jovi took that to the, the next level as well so i think that whole that is the same space right you know that stadium rock where heavy metal bands were stadium rock bands, but they were a little less heavy, like bands like in the 70s, Boston became stadium rock after Led Zeppelin in bands like that. So like a softer, more commercial version, which can fill stadiums.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned uh, Mott Lang, that's uh, Robert John Lang, born in in South Africa in 1948. So, you know, as you had mentioned, you know, he famously did a few of the, the ACDC albums, you know, notably uh, Highway to Hell and uh, Back in Black, which we just covered uh, you know, not too long ago. And listening through this time, I mean, it's the similarities to, to AC DC uh, were just very apparent. I didn't notice
1: it in the past. And no. I've listened to this album hundreds of times probably over the years, but listening to it with headphones on and listening for details, I heard so much especially what he did with the way he got Joe to sing, which was not really his style, the ragged delivery and some of the guitar riffs were, but then you've got more guitarists, so it sounds different because it's all layered, but there was, yeah, it, it was
0: ACDC 2.0. <laughs> and then, you know, the other aspect of the, the production, which I think started on the previous album, High and Dry, uh, was that multi-tracking of the vocals, you know, basically Joe Elliott harmonizing with himself. Yeah, that's kind of a Def Leppard signature sound. I've never seen Def Leppard live and I've never really listened to their, their live recordings. I have to imagine that something's probably a bit lost when you, you know, because you wouldn't be able to have, you know, that, that vocal uh, effect. Hmm. Well, like all of them are singing, like whenever I've seen
1: footage and and maybe they, who knows what they do with if, if backtracking exists or whatever, but. They all have the little headset thingies on. Oh yeah! And every member, drummer, bassist, guitarist, everybody during those hey, hey, things are all like filling it in.
0: So wow. Okay, well let's uh, let's keep going. Um, here's the the, the track I, I mentioned earlier, "Rock of Ages."
1: Now y'all can't see oh, this man. but I wish you could. During every, during could. every track, me, me and Don are, are bobbing our heads, and Andy is sitting there with his arms crossed. <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh.
2: I, I like, are you guys joking?
1: <laughs> wow. Ooh. <laughs> Alright, well, I got I'm yeah. coming
2: from total total opposite side of this one. Um uh, my three words for Pyromania are ACDC without the balls, definitely hear the strong ACDC tie, especially since we reviewed one of their records not too long ago. But for me, this just has like everything that's fun and exciting about ACDC just stripped away and polished up to this nth like, degree and packaged up and feels very commercial and just without a whole lot of artistic merit, in my opinion. <laughs>
1: Is that Megatron? <laughs> no, it's Cobra Commander. Oh. Nice. Oh, Andy. I mean. There's just
2: not a lot. I really was looking for something. I like, I like the vocals overall, I guess. I, think I enjoy not so much the group vocals like you guys were talking about, but uh, what's the lead vocalist's name again, Don? Joe Elliott. Joe Elliott. Yeah. I like his voice. But the guitar is what really to me like. It feels so neutered to me <laughs> It's the word I keep coming back to. Just so basic.
1: you basic. Maybe my brain's affected by the time and by my feelings about it at the time. Because every time I listened to this, to prepare for this, I was 100% digging every Into minute. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, <laughs> so Part of it is
2: just when we grew up is different, I don't know. And that's, I'm never going to yeah. get over that.
1: I, it's not that many years between us, but you, you do have a – you are certainly more – Especially when it comes to metal, you have higher standards, I guess, than I do. I can't speak for Don, but that's kind of what I like about metal: is you can have really low standards and find <laughs> stuff to really enjoy, right? You know,
0: yeah, I, th- you know, it, it probably is a kind of a generational thing because I imagine this was probably dudes and my doorway into sort of hard rock and, mm-hmm. and metal. Yep. you know, so this was our first taste of it with Rock of Ages in particular. Like that's one of uh, it, with every rock
1: and roll generation I don't know I don't think bands are doing this anymore but there's an anthem about rock right. and how what I thought was so badass was you know I'd go to church looking through the hymnal and there's rock of ages and I'm like oh took a church song and then made it into a cool song about rock and roll and I thought that was
0: like so rebellious and cool I do. I, I do understand where where Andy's coming from, and I actually kind of feel that way about the next two Def Leppard re- records, Hysteria and uh, was it Adrenalize. Those, I don't know. Those do feel more like they're just kind of corny and and commercial. I mean, there's good moments on those on those records, but I don't know. This one, this one feels kind of more authentic to me. You know, I, I don't mean no disrespect, but it's just
2: not for me.
1: Very strongly not for you, so. you know. I probably would if would induct this into the Elm nerds hall of fame myself. But i I think it's more of a heart and and nostalgia thing than anything else. Yeah,
0: I think that's probably true for for me as well. You Guys, I want to try.
2: I mean, you probably have the audience behind your back on this one.
1: Yeah, I, I don't. I, I'm sure we would, but there's no reason to to turn friends into enemies here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, okay Well, from January of 1983 That was Def Leppard with Pyromania This is friendship Pure, unadulterated friendship oh, yeah. Are you a music fan? Join the discussion on the Album Nerds Discord AlbumNerds.com slash Discord Tell us what you like, what you dislike And suggest topics for the Wheel of Musical Destiny A lot of people say Eric Clapton is a god Stevie Ray's a yeah. god too, you know yeah. So, Stevie Ray
1: Vaughan, uh, Howard Stern calls him a god. He says, "I'm just a human being." (laughs) We'll have to decide for ourselves. (laughs) So, uh, I I went with Stevie Ray Vaughan's debut album, Texas Flood. It's Stevie Ray and Double Trouble. Why don't we jump right in and listen to a little bit of the big single, Pride and Joy. Okay, so that was a little bit of pride and joy from the album Texas Flood. came out in June of 1983 on Epic Records. It was named after the song Texas Flood, which was a cover um, first recorded by blues singer Larry Davis in 1958. Uh, It was produced by the band and recording engineer Richard Mullen, and it was recorded in three days at Jackson Brown's personal recording studio in Los Angeles. Vaughn wrote six of the album's ten tracks, and Pride and Joy and Love Struck Baby were the two singles. The three words I used to describe this album blues guitar resurrection because the face of music in the in pop music in particular and mtv type music in the 1980s was stuff like cindy lopper and madonna and and the police and stuff like that and i feel like i mean blues at that point was not, not cool something people were into it had kind of died with the blues rock of the 70s and he brought it back Yeah, I mean, he took bits and pieces of all that he learned as a kid growing up on Albert King, Otis Rush, Muddy Waters, uh, Lonnie Mack, and then Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton. There's little bits of that in here, but he puts his own flair on it, his own style. Yeah, Stevie Ray Vaughan, I never dug
0: in before. You guys?
2: Not really. I mean, not to this degree. I'm sure glad that we had the chance to.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's somebody that I've you know has been you know kind of in the background and I know that he's you know the guy but um no I've never really spent time uh with with an album before
1: yeah at the time when it came out I thought it was like too grown up or something It was like old people
0: music I actually think I thought that song was Huey Lewis (laughs) (laughs) his voice kind of sounds Huey Lewis Uh, yeah yeah yeah, a little
1: bit a little bit all right so why don't we shake that off and uh (laughs) not that I don't love Huey because I do why don't we uh, listen to a little bit of Dirty Pool.
0: You've been playing pool. I can smell the cigarette smoke, man. <laughs> I know, right? I, I like that guitar strumming there, though. It's almost more like, like Spanish guitar or something. Yeah. You know, that, that kind of back and forth on the same string.
2: But, yeah, well, that, that song in particular is pretty interesting. Blues sound that you don't hear too often with that guitar. I really love this record in general, uh, particularly some of the longer cuts. Uh, My three words are 80s got blues, question mark, exclamation point. Uh, This was a nice, nice little find, man. I really, really enjoyed every, every moment on here. Yeah, he just rips through a lot of a lot of great songs. <laughs> his guitar playing's awesome. It's just, it really seems to be all about him and the guitar and his, his vocals are really good though and he plays along with his guitar really well. Like he sings along with his guitar very well.
1: Yeah, we haven't talked about a blues album in a while. We've talked about a lot of blues rock. Right.
2: That's yeah, a straight blues.
1: Yeah, and that's great. Uh, I I wish I had appreciated it more earlier. I mean, I've had it in my collection for a long time, and I listen to it occasionally, but I hadn't really listened to it five, six times in a row. I had one whole day where this was the only album I listened to. Cool. To experience a little bit more of this guitar virtuoso, why don't we check out a little bit of Testify.
0: That may have been the highlight of the album for me. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. It's good stuff. So that's... Sort of a loose cover uh, of the Isley Brothers' uh, song, Testify. Um, although you, you can barely uh, barely recognize it. Uh, the, the three words I, I chose to describe the album were just, meet Stevie Ray. You know, I, I feel like the whole point of this album is just to to showcase uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan and, and his talent. You know, I, I think 12-bar blues are, it's just, you know, the perfect backdrop for soloing. And the, the guitar is in the forefront of the mix. I think there's only one guitar ever. You know, there's no overdubbing and stuff. It, you know, it's just Stevie Ray's guitar, uh, but also his voice. You know, I, I think his, his voice really, really shines. You know, I'm not the biggest blues guy, uh, in the world, but like I, I really appreciate Stevie Ray Vaughan's um, – no, just uh, the way he plays. You know, I, I think I can pick out Stevie Ray Vaughan versus Eric Clapton. You know, I, I think he's kind of innovative in, in where he goes with his his solos. He comes back to, like, that musical theme pretty quickly, so – he brings you back, you know, because um, I think sometimes when people are soloing, you can get like a little bored and, and drift off, and he doesn't stray too far uh, from from that theme, which I which I also appreciate. I was going
2: to say for a debut
0: record and
2: in the blues genre, it's really tight. Like they really stick pretty close to things. I thought for the most part on this record, yeah.
1: You know, another 1983 album he contributed to was "Let's Dance." David Bowie, really. Uh, and Andy and I talked about that at one point on the show a couple years back. Yeah, he's he's the guitar on that Ooh. album and it came out the same year as this and there was a story that he was supposed to tour with David Bowie and then uh, double trouble was going to be the opener but it it all fell through and he kind of wanted to do his own thing and and play play blues in blues places and not be playing, you know, second fiddle to David Bowie.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I mean, going back and, and listening to to that album, the guitar work on that is, is pretty innovative. I don't know how much of that is, is his input um, or if it's coming from Bowie or Nile Rogers, but the, the work on that album is, is more subtle and it's a lot of, it's kind of funky based things, but it's, it's pretty interesting. You could even, you know, argue more interesting than, you know, some of this, this straight blues stuff. Do it, I was going to mention that song, Lenny. It actually reminded me of of Pearl Jam, Yellow Ledbetter. Yeah. Some of those guitar sounds there. Yeah, both of which remind me a little bit of uh, Wind Cries Mary
1: by Mm. Jimi Hendrix. So there's, yeah, I heard that when I saw your note on that and I went and listened to both songs and I definitely hear it as well. I am going to nominate this album for the Album Nerds Hall of Fame. I think it's been a little while since I did a nomination. I I, I don't know. It but uh I think this is a this is bluesy, moving, emotionally uh, ups and downs. It's great. I I enjoyed every second of it, so yes for me. Yeah,
2: it's always hard with the blues cuz so much of it is built off of covers or you know pulled from other styles from the past but man i really like this record a lot too and man in the 80s like i'd be hard-pressed to find something better (laughs) better blues rock in the 80s so yeah definitely a yes for me as well
0: um before i vote i'll just provide a a slightly controversial take i'm gonna say that and this is no offense to to stevie ray vaughn it's not his fault but I, i think in some ways this album may have set back guitar rock because you know this this is a time you know kind of in the post punk era and in, in the the metal era you know where people are starting to diverge from the blues you know um, and we're getting more innovative with with guitar play and I, and I think you know with this album I don't know it I feel like any you know great guitarist that came afterwards is feels like they have to play the blues <laughs> And I don't know if that's, you know... <laughs> but around the same time, Eddie Van
1: Halen was setting a new standard for how to not play the blues. Right. Right? So I think that they became two camps. I think, like, your Jimi Hendrix, which was kind of a mix of the two, the blues-rocky thing, I feel like at this point, the paths were diverging and and Stevie Ray was just reminding people of this road, too. Yeah.
0: I think that's a that's a fair point. There is a group of sort of, I think, music snobs that are just like, you know, if it's not the blues, it's not worth my time, you know, and I think people see it as sort of like this purest form of of rock and roll, you know, and with, you know, every metropolitan area, like every night you can go out and there's somebody, you know, trying to be Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, But anyway, uh, yeah, great album. Definitely Hall (laughs) of Fame. (laughs) Wow. All right, so uh, if you haven't
1: heard it, you probably have at least heard some of it, go check out Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble Texas Flood, an Album Nerds Hall of Fame member. So we talked about a lot of different kinds of music in 1983 today. We learned that Don hates the blues and Andy hates Def Leppard. (laughs) Yep. And I I love everything. What would you guys learn?
2: You know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I have such an idea of what the '80s sound like in my head, and a lot of these records that we talked about kind of buck that trend. So that, oh, I appreciate that. I like that we're getting to some of the I don't know deeper cuts, but like some of the off the beaten path kind of stuff a little bit. I appreciate that.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it, it's a it was a cool time in in music. You know, I mean, a lot of exciting things going on. You know, we're starting to uh, embrace sort of the. You know the more glam metal, but you also have the the beginning of this sort of blues revival, and then you've also got sort of you know post punk and new wave and, and synth pop uh, going on, and also you know you, you have Michael Jackson and R and B and sort of the beginnings of that like new jack swing uh, sound. So mm-hmm. um, definitely a you know it's a year we could we could revisit. I'm sure, we will, and that's one to grow on. <laughs> I mean from
2: your destiny. All right, boys and girls, it's that time again to bring out our favorite AI bot, Wadbot herself, to tell us what the future has in store for us next week.
0: Your musical destiny is to get in touch with your thoughts and feelings. You will be exploring those with the assistance of singer-songwriters of the 1970s.
1: Ooh,
2: 70s singer-songwriter. That should be fun. I feel like, uh,
1: yeah, like, like all those Laurel Canyon people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean James Taylor of course comes to mind Carol King Stephen Bishop I mean there's a, there's a lot of well-known choices and there's a lot of one-hit wonders in that era too so we're these would be solo artists yeah
2: or about like Simon Garfunkel would they qualify in this case or is that
0: you could do mm. Paul Simon okay yeah.
2: just one or the <laughs> other <out> okay <laughs>
0: Who's your favorite 70s singer-songwriter What's your favorite album From 1983 What else are you listening to Let us know Join fellow album nerds On discord At albumnerds.com Slash discord You can email us At podcast At albumnerds.com Follow us On Facebook And Instagram At albumnerds And please subscribe Rate and review On your favorite podcast app if you'd like to support the show, you can do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support. Thank you once again for joining us on the Album Nerds Podcast. We'll
1: catch you next time with those '70s singer-songwriters. We're all going to be moved.
2: Thanks for listening, everybody. See you. Sayonara. That doesn't sound racist, right? Because we did.
1: <laughs> <laughs> midnight pretenders pretending it's midnight and being so cool. <laughs>